verses 9 and 10. We're going to continue our study through the book of Romans. We are, we are in the 10th chapter. We've been in this study now for 65 lessons. This is our 65th lesson from the book of Romans. And we're going to deal with two pivotal verses of Scripture, just two verses this morning. I've got quite a bit to say about those two verses, so I'm not going to do a lot of introduction or a lot about talking about where we've been. We'll get, we'll get into that as we get into these two verses. I just want to read the text and get into it this morning. Amen. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. Verse 10 says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So that's where we're going to be this morning for our text. I'll read verse 9 again, then kind of get into it. It says, That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Sometimes when you approach a passage of Scripture, to teach on it that has been widely misinterpreted. It is best to state at the outset what the verse does not say. Now, that's not my preferred method of, of approaching Scripture. As a matter of fact, I cannot think of another time through the course of the book of Romans and 65 lessons where I have started that way. But this morning, in regards to these two particular verses, I think it's best to begin by dealing directly with the widely held misconceptions that exist about this text. Proponents of a faith-only plan of salvation use these two verses as a mechanical formula for salvation. On the basis of this text that we're studying today, they deny the need for repentance. They deny the need for water baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. To the extent that they may accept that those are biblical experiences, they relegate them to some kind of post-salvation experience. Their argument is that justification by faith demands faith alone, that that is all that it takes to be saved is faith all by itself. However, by using these two verses, and particularly the verse that's on the screen behind you or behind me and, and in front of you this morning, those two verses undermine the very premise of faith alone. The very idea that is uh, that is that they're, they're building their doctrine on this this verse strikes to the very foundation of it because essentially verse nine says, if you confess and believe, then you'll be saved. It's clearly stated in this text that salvation hinges on some kind of doing. It's not just if you believe you'll be saved, but it's if you do these things and believe. If you confess with your mouth and believe, you will be saved. That's the exact opposite of what the faith alone proponents teach and is contrary to the way that they apply this verse of Scripture. They'll tell you that all you have to do is believe that Jesus is Lord. Just make that confession, Jesus is Lord, and you're saved. And they conveniently ignore the fact that that, that idea of even having to make the confession is linked to obedience. Faith without obedience 
is not faith. Faith without some kind of doing, faith without some kind of action is not faith at all. And so uh, the context of these verses is not the way that they would describe them or the way that they would present them. As a matter of fact, they've ignored the entire context of Paul's writing, especially in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. What we're discussing in these chapters is the condition of the Jews, not the salvation of the church. And the passage that we dealt with last Sunday morning, uh, verses 5 through verse 8, dealt with the Jewish refusal, refusal to obey the Word of God. They had the law. They had the Word. They had everything they needed to obtain righteousness from the law, under the law, from God, but they missed the righteousness that was available to them under the law because they perverted and twisted the law into something that it was not. They will be condemned, Paul told us last week. They will be condemned not because they didn't have the Word, but because they didn't obey the Word that they had. And he ended that passage in verse 8 with these words. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So the word that needed to be obeyed was in their mouth, and it was in their heart, and it was something that Paul said, it's what we preach, the word of faith. Verse nine, hey, kids, Sunday school has started, and you're welcome to go back there and make yourself at home. Just see Sister McCall, and she'll put you in the right room. Amen. Thank you so much. I didn't, mean, didn't want to single them out and embarrass them, but I'd rather them not have to sit here and listen to me this morning. Amen. Verse 9 is the continuation of verse 8. and We, we studied up through verse 8 last week and stopped in the, at the end of verse 8. Verse 9 does not separate the need for obedience to the Word. Remember we said last week we were quoting texts out of Deuteronomy and texts out of Leviticus, out of the Old Testament, where it said, you have the Word, now obey it. This is the Word, believe it and obey it. And so verse 9 does not separate the need for obedience from the Word that's in their mouth and in their heart. Rather, it demonstrates that the Word demands a response. It demands that you do something. Not just that you believe, but that in believing, you act on that belief. That is consistent with the whole message of the book of Romans. In Romans, Paul strongly emphasizes the necessity of obedience to faith. Obedience linked to faith. Faith does not exist alone. Indeed, faith cannot exist by itself. Faith has to have some kind of action that validates it. I use the example pretty often, and you've heard it a hundred times, but if I told you that the first person that got on this platform with me this morning would get a $100 bill, if you believe me, you'd already be out of your seat and coming to this platform because there's nobody under the sound of my voice that couldn't use a $100 bill. Amen? But none of you moved. Because none of you really believed I was going to give you a $100 bill. Because I've done this before. One of these days I'm going to pull out a $100 bill. <laughs> Amen. Faith is linked to action. If you believe, you'll do. If you really believe, 
that not changing the oil in your car will ruin your engine, you'll go get the oil changed. And if you don't believe it, you'll ruin the engine. Amen? Because belief is going to result in some kind of action. It's going to result in some kind of obedience, some type of, of doing that is linked with faith. That is consistent with what Paul is teaching throughout the whole of the book of Romans. So if we're going to deal with salvation, why then didn't Paul just quote Acts 2.38 and tell them you got to repent of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of those sins, and you'll be filled with the Holy Ghost, and that's how you're saved. If we're going to link obedience to salvation, why didn't Paul do that? First of all, there's a strong reference in this verse to baptism, and I'll get to that in, in just a few minutes, and there's possibly even an a, a implicit a reference to the infilling of the Holy Ghost. But before we get to all of that, let's answer the question for the contextual reasons why Paul is not more explicit about salvation in Romans chapter 10. One reason is that Paul's primary audience, and we said this at the outset of the study, Paul's primary audience is already saved. He's not writing to people who are lost. He's writing to people who have already experienced salvation. Way back in Romans chapter 1, he addressed this letter to those who are in Rome who have been saved. Amen. They're those that have already received the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are the saints, he said. Saints are people who are saved. Ain'ts are people who ain't. Amen. But saints are people who are saved. And he addressed this to the saints in Rome. And one reason that he doesn't take the time then to completely flesh out a doctrine of salvation in this portion or in the book of Romans in general, but in this portion specifically, is he's dealing with the Jewish people. He's dealing with the condition of the nation of Israel. He's not talking about telling you how you need to be saved. He's talking to people who already know how to be saved. The fundamental flaw in trying to build a plan of salvation on these two verses alone is that they were not written for that purpose. They were not written to tell anybody how to be saved. Paul was not writing to the lost. He was writing to people who already knew how to be born again of water and of spirit. They were people who had already experienced salvation. He knew. That because of their knowledge, because of the knowledge of his audience, because of their understanding of the Word of God that they already had, he understood that he could briefly summarize the gospel message using the language that was used in the previous passage out of the Old Testament, the word in your mouth and in your heart, that he could summarize the gospel using that language, quoting from the Old Testament, and not confuse his audience. They already knew. They already understood. You have to remember, the first century church doesn't read Romans chapter 10 with a preconceived notion that they need to support a belief system. They don't read Romans chapter 10 with the preconceived idea that here's the plan of salvation. They read Romans chapter 10 just like Paul wrote it as a progressive argument where he is now talking about the nation of Israel and where they are. And so when they come to this text in the, in, the, in the first century, the New Testament church, they don't come to this text looking for how can or how should I be saved. 
They don't make confession and belief into a separate doctrine. They don't try to divorce verse 9 of Romans chapter 10 from the words of Peter in Acts chapter 2. And, and we shouldn't either. No serious student of the Word of God should try to build a doctrine of salvation here where Paul's not talking about salvation. Amen. It ought to be interpreted. Scripture should interpret Scripture. It ought to be understood. We ought to see it as a foundational part of the gospel message that the church believed and proclaimed as truth. And in the second chapter of the book of Acts, Whenever Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, you need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He wasn't preaching to folks who were saved. He wasn't preaching to folks who were in the church. As a matter of fact, he was preaching to people who had just asked him the question, what do we need to do to be saved? He was giving a direct answer to the question, how can we be saved? And the answer that he gave became the fundamental salvation message of the first century church. It is the message that they preached throughout the book of Acts, throughout the entire first century. Amen? I'll take it a step further. The message that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 is the message that was preached to Paul at the point of his conversion. When Paul saw the blinding light on the road to Damascus and God confronted him and changed his, forever altered his belief system, whenever Ananias came to him to preach to him, he came and preached to him repentance, water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of his sins uh, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. And whenever Paul then in Acts chapter 19 encounters the believers of John, amen, he preaches the same message that was preached to him by Ananias. He doesn't tell them, well, have you been baptized since you believed? Well, then you just need to confess and believe and you'll be saved. No, that's not what he said. He said you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus uh, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Uh, amen. And then the Bible goes on to say, and he baptized them in the name of Jesus. Uh, and after he baptized them in the name of Jesus, he laid his hands on them and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them the utterance. That's the message that Paul preached. That's the salvation message that Paul preached. So when we look at this text, we've got to look at it through that paradigm. We've got to understand Paul's not teaching another way of salvation. He's not establishing another doctrine different from the doctrine that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. He's not giving somebody some other way to come to God in salvation. What he is doing is he's simplifying the doctrine that he already has and that his, the people he's writing to already understand and already believe and putting it in the context of the Old Testament. Testament verses that he just quoted. The word is in your mouth and in your heart. That's what the Old Testament said, and that's what he does now. He takes the gospel and he simplifies it in those terms. So let's look at what he says. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So confession and belief are fundamental to salvation. They're a part of salvation. The first phrase, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, literally means to confess 
with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now that's important because the Greek word there is kurios. And it's the Greek word that is used by Greek-speaking believers to represent the name of God from the Old Testament. The tetragrammaton was the Hebrew construct of four consonants that was used to represent the name of God. The Jews would not write the full name of God because they felt like God deserved more reverence and respect than that a man would casually handle his name. They wouldn't even speak that name. When they, when they wrote it, they wrote the consonants and left the vowels out. That's what the tetragrammaton is. It's a, it's a grouping of four consonants in the Hebrew language that represent the name of God. It doesn't have any vowels. It doesn't have any pronunciation to it. It's just four consonants. Whenever they would see that, they wouldn't even read it for what it said out of respect for God. Because the scripture said, you don't take the name of God in vain. And they took that very literally. You don't use the name of God lightly. You don't speak the name of God for no reason. And so when they would see that and when they would read that, they would substitute another word for it. When a Greek reader of the Hebrew Old Testament would run across that name of God, the word that they would use was kurios. It means Lord. And that word was the word that was used to, to, to replace the word that we in the English has been variously translated as Jehovah or Yahweh. We don't know exactly how the Hebrews said that tetragrammaton, that name was lost to history. Amen. It, was, it got to the point where it was so rarely spoken that nobody remembered how to say it. We just know that probably the closest English pronunciation of it is Yahweh. The Jehovah is the more accepted pronunciation, but Hebrew does not have a J sound. There is no Jah sound in Hebrew, so it could not be Jehovah. It would be closer. Yahweh would be the there would be a Y sound, and so it would be closer to Yahweh than Jehovah. But it doesn't matter. The word there represented the very name of God, the I Am that I Am, and that word in the Greek was transliterated as Lord. And to confess that Jesus is Lord was to confess the deity of Jesus Christ. This is the point I'm making. That confession that Jesus is Lord is the confession that Jesus is God. That's the confession. It's the confession that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. That is the greatest of all confessions. And in the context of Romans, it was the stumbling block. You remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that Jesus was the, the stone, the, the, the rock that would stand by them, but instead he became the stumbling stone that stood in their way because they couldn't recognize who he was. That confession that Jesus is God, that confession that Jesus is who he said he was, was the stumbling block that hindered the Jews from finding salvation. They could not accept the idea that Jesus was who he said he was. We've said this now for several weeks because they got the law wrong, because they got their understanding of the word wrong, they couldn't see him. 
They couldn't recognize him. The lens that they were looking through was focused all wrong, and they couldn't see him. That's why Jesus said to them, search the scriptures. They testify of me. You've got the word that tells you who I am, but you can't see who I am because you're not seeing the word right. You've twisted the word. You've got it all messed up. And so they couldn't accept that Jesus was who he said he was. But to the first century church, to the believers, Jesus was unequivocally God. There was no question in their mind in regards to the deity of Jesus Christ. They completely understood what they were saying when they said, Jesus is Lord. They embraced the truth uh, that God manifests himself in flesh, uh, that God became a man. And that truth became the fundamental confession of their belief. John MacArthur makes the point that in the book of Acts... Jesus is referred to as a Savior twice, but he's referred to as Lord 92 times. In the entire New Testament, he is referred to about 10 times as Savior, but 700 times as Lord. That was the fundamental confession. Jesus is Lord. Not just that he's my Savior, he's God. Amen. When the two terms appeared together, Lord and Savior in the New Testament, Lord always comes before Savior. That's who He is. Jesus is the God of the ages, the ancient of days, the one who was and is and forever will be manifest in the flesh. And that truth was a fundamental tenet of the New Testament church. Now, that raises a question. If the confession that Jesus is Lord was a fundamental tenet of New Testament salvation, the message that Paul preached, and that's how verse 8 ended, the, the word of faith that we preach, if, if the confession that Jesus is Lord is a fundamental tenet of New Testament salvation, then when did that confession occur? The verb tense in the Greek suggests that when Paul refers to confession and belief, he's referring to a specific past tense event that has already occurred that is associated with the initial conversion of believers. The scholars say that in the first century church, they would have immediately recognized that Paul's talking about baptism in the name of Jesus. Listen, Bible scholar F.F. Bruce writes this. He says, if we are to think of one outstanding occasion for such a confession to be made, we should more probably think of that first confession, the answer of a good conscience made in Christian baptism. C.E.B. Cranfield, in his commentary, notes that the confessional formula, Jesus is Lord, was used in baptism. Specifically, he notes that baptism by the first century church was performed in the name of Jesus. And he goes on to imply that that in the name of Jesus would be synonymous with the confession that Jesus is Lord. Now, I could go on and bore you with a whole list of scholars that relate this passage to baptism because that list is lengthy. 
But it is sufficient this morning for me to say that baptism in the name of Jesus Christ was the public confession that Jesus is Lord. And that was a fundamental tenet of salvation in the first century church. It was an act of faithful obedience. Faith believed that Jesus was Lord. Faith believed that Jesus could wash away my sins. And obedience demanded that I act on that faith and get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of my sins. Amen? Now the latter half of the verse says, And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the culminating event of the gospel message of salvation. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We repent of our sins, we die with him. When we're baptized, we're buried with him. The scripture said we're baptized, we're buried with Christ, or we're baptized into Jesus Christ. And when we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, we receive that resurrection and life, that same spirit which caused him to rise from the dead will cause us also to rise on that resurrection morning when the trump of God sounds and he catches his church out of this world. Amen? So if we're buried with him in baptism, then we had the promise that we will rise and walk with him in the newness of life. That promise is fulfilled in the baptism of the Holy Ghost. David Bernard says, It takes no faith to acknowledge Christ's death and burial. Only those who accept his miraculous resurrection actually believe in the supernatural power of God. Christ's death would have no power to justify without the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the supernatural outpouring of the Holy Ghost that fills the church with the power and presence of God and equips us for our mission. Amen? When we believe in our heart, He comes to live in our heart. Amen? We confess with our mouth. Jesus is Lord in baptism. We go down in the water in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of our sins, and that confession is made. When we believe in our heart that he has been raised from the dead, amen, that resurrection power, that infilling of the Holy Ghost comes into our life and forever changes us. Amen? Now, the link between water baptism and this passage is very strong. Christian baptism is undeniably the place where confession of the Lordship of Jesus Christ was made. There's an incredible link there between baptism in Jesus' name and confessing that Jesus is God. The name of Jesus that was spoken over us in baptism as, as, as we were baptized was confessed over us. And we confessed ourselves by our mouth and by our actions that Jesus Christ was Lord when we went to a preacher and said, I need to be baptized in his name. Put me down in the water in the name of Jesus Christ. James said that name Jesus was that that name that was spoken over you. That that name by which you were called, he said, in baptism. Amen. The link between spirit baptism and the latter half of the verse is more tenuous. Some, including David Bernard, believe in, in 
that in the resurrection was seen the most difficult part of the gospel message. That was the hardest thing for people to accept, and that the resurrection was used as a shorthand version for belief in the entire gospel message. The pulpit commentary agrees with that outlook. But as I've said at the outset, it's easy to see how the first century church would have recognized both water baptism and spirit baptism as being inherent in confessing with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in the heart. Amen. Verse 10 says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So verse 10 is just a restatement of the fundamental truths that were conveyed in verse 9. It also underscores again the error of faith alone. Since righteousness, which denotes right standing with God, and salvation are somewhat synonymous. They mean the same thing in, in, a, very, in, in a lot of ways, righteousness and salvation being the same. This verse very succinctly demonstrates the need for some sort of action to be linked with the faith that saves you. From the heart, a man believes. And with the mouth, confession is made. There's some kind of action that is linked with faith in order for it to result in salvation. As a matter of fact, if, and some people try to make a distinction between righteousness and salvation in this verse and say, well, we're talking about two different aspects here. With the heart, you, you believe in righteousness, you're made righteous. But with the mouth, you confess unto salvation. That's how you're saved. Well, then the salvation is in the doing, not in the believing. Now, I don't believe that. I believe that you, believing can't be separated from the doing. I don't believe that you can drive a wedge between faith and obedience. I don't believe you can believe and not obey. Amen? So the two are synonymous. But if you were going to separate the two, if you were going to say all it takes is faith alone without any obedience, then you're on the wrong end of the spectrum. Amen? Because the salvation in that verse is linked with the obedience. Belief and confession are tied together. You, 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 they're linked together in salvation. And the only way to reconcile that fact is to recognize that saving faith demands obedience to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Obedience to the plan of salvation is inherent in the confession that Jesus is Lord. Those two verses that we're looking at this morning, they don't represent another or a different plan of salvation. Indeed, in the context of Romans chapter 10, they represent the need to faithfully obey the gospel message that is preached by the first century church. Paul has demonstrated to us that Moses, last week, Moses required a man to obey the law in order to find righteousness under the law. However, the whole purpose of the law was to drive men to faith in God. That obedience was supposed to be an obedience of faith, and that's what made the law effective. Not just the works that a man did, but the way that they were done, that they were done in faith in God. The problem with the Jews was not that they obeyed the law. The problem was they tried to make the law into the thing that saved them instead of God. They didn't do it out of faith. They did it out of self-righteousness. It was the obedience of faith that made the law effective. And the obedience of faith is the cornerstone of salvation in both Testaments. As we wrap things up, I want to back up 
to verse 8. I've alluded to it several times this morning, and I'm going to close with this. Romans chapter 10, verse 8 says, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. More than anything else, verse 8 establishes the context by which verses 9 and 10 have to be understood. Verses 9 and 10 are to be understood in the context of the word of faith which Paul preached. So what did Paul preach in regards to salvation? If you're going to find salvation in Romans chapter 10, you need to know what Paul preached. To, to answer that, I'm gonna, and I've already alluded to it this morning, but in closing, I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 19. We're going to read the first six verses. And it came to pass that while Paul, it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Under what then were you baptized? And they said, Under John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. That's what Paul preached. Paul preached, you've got to repent. You've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues. Would you stand with me? I've taken a more apologetic approach, and apologetics does not mean I'm apologizing. It means I'm defending truth. And I've taken a more apologetic approach to these two verses than I have any other verses we study in the book of Romans, mainly because they are foundational to certain belief systems that are in error. And so I've tried my best this morning. I hope I've not confused, or I hope, I, I hope I've been plain enough that I've not muddied the water any further for anybody. But as we're making this progression through the book of Romans, I want to take these verses alone and apart and deal with them by themselves. Now, next week we'll pick up in verse 11, which actually restates some of this and then head on into the rest of the book of Romans. But for a moment this morning, I just want to make the point very strongly. What the first century church believed, what they taught, what they preached as salvation didn't change in Rome. It didn't change in Corinth. It didn't change in Galatia. It didn't change in Thessalonica. Where they preached, they preached Jesus Christ. They preached him crucified, buried, and risen from the dead on the third day. And they preached a gospel message that was synonymous with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They preached, you have to repent. You've got to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. If we, saw, if we saw nothing else today, we saw the significance of why it matters that you're not baptized in titles. Why it matters that you're baptized in the name. Because baptism in the name is the declaration. It is the confession of your faith. Jesus 
is Lord. That's what it confesses. He is God. He is Lord. I'm going to make him Lord of my life. And so it's very significant. It's not, some people tell you, well, that's, oh, it's, it's all semantics. It, it just matters really that you're baptized. It doesn't really matter how you're baptized. It just matters that you were baptized. I disagree. Fundamentally, the Word of God teaches us that it is important. Peter told the council in Acts chapter 4, the, 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 the court that they dragged him before, he said, there is no other name under heaven given among me in Acts 4 and 12 whereby we must be saved. He didn't say there's a name that can save us, but it really doesn't matter how we use it. He said there's only one name, and that's the name that we must be saved by that name. Amen. That's the significance of Jesus' name, baptism. And that Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 does more to underscore that than it does to establish some different doctrine of how you can be saved. Amen. With my mouth I confess, Jesus is Lord. The preacher speaks that name over me in baptism. I come out of that water, I come out of that water, believing in the resurrection and life. He fills me with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In obedience to the Word of God. It's not a different doctrine. It's the same. Amen. I wonder this morning if we could take just a moment. And rejoice in the salvation that we have. I understand that I'm preaching to a house full of people who already know what I'm saying this morning. You're, you're, I'm preaching to the choir. Amen. But that's okay. I'm asking for a few moments this morning. If you just lift your hands in the presence of God, would you thank Him for such wonderful salvation, for such wonderful grace and mercy? Thank Him for the beauty of that name, Jesus, that washes away my sins. Amen. Thank Him for the wonderful revelation of who He is. He is God. He is the Ancient of Days, the one who was and is and forever will be. And Why don't you thank Him for the work of the Holy Ghost in your life, that He fills you with His Spirit. Amen. And that Spirit empowers you. That Spirit gives you, amen, the strength that you need to make it through the troubles and trials of life. It, it gives you peace in times of trouble and turmoil. Amen. That Spirit gives you that confidence of your salvation. Amen. Why don't you take a moment as Brother Ryan's going to sing a worship song. Can we just magnify the Lord together in this house?